Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret's just-arrived collection of swim and other sun-ready silhouettes. Pack your bags with new styles from the Very Sexy Collection, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy push-up bra, in on-trend hues like green and citron and black shine. Rewind to the future with the VS Archives Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. Plus, mix and match with their wide range of bikini tops and bottoms to find your dream suit. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome to Katie's Crib, a production of iHeartRadio and Shondaland Audio. Hey everybody, I'm Katie Lowe's and this is Katie's Crib, a podcast that gets real about the ups and downs and how come nobody ever told me's of parenting. We swap stories, offer tips, and hold space to ask questions and grow. Today, we're talking about how we as parents, particularly white parents, can help create an anti-racist society. I sit down with racial justice educator and writer Debbie Irving, as well as sociologist and college professor Dr. Margaret Hagerman, to discuss ways we can shape our children's environment so that we're not reproducing patterns of racial inequality. And of course, a really big part of it is starting with ourselves. We've got two interviews for you in this episode, so let's go ahead and get to it. Here's my first guest. I want to introduce you guys to the wonderful Debbie Irving. She is a racial justice educator. She's an author of the book called Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race, which I am very admittingly so too slow to have done myself. And as you are just catching someone who is doing this currently, I only got the misinformation that I'm now learning we get in school, which you're an educator and I want to get into all of that. But like you being from Boston and me being a New Yorker, what I did feel growing up in school was that slavery has nothing to do with me because I'm from the North. Correct. And I, my people didn't do all of that horrible stuff down there. That is a Southern problem, right? Mm -hmm. And I've I've heard you had that feeling as well. And it's not until recently— with everything going on in this country where I have had to come to terms with my own racism— Um, how that has been a huge part of my life without me knowing, which is white privilege in and of itself, and really trying to learn quickly so that I can be a good mom, but also realizing it's going to take my whole life (laughs) to, (laughs) to truly understand, unlearn what I know, and relearn some good stuff thanks to people like you. So tell me about the Boston thing. Well, the Boston thing. So, yeah, we... I absolutely, I got this message that we were all squeaky clean in the North, but those bad people in the South, you know, they were the racists. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea how much racism was happening right under my nose all around me. And I think it's really important um, to make a connection to what we're talking about with the squeaky clean North and colorblind because they go together. So I, I'm using that's what word. I had. That's yeah, what, so, that's what you're getting with me. <laughs> so I also grew up in a house where we didn't talk about it. It was considered. I don't know if anyone told me that talking about race was rude, but 
Uh, you know that kids pick things up so quickly. All uh, And if you read my book, you know, my opening question to my mother is whatever happened to all the Indians? Well, she got so, she behaved, her, she, she, you know, her answer was so unlike anything she'd ever said that, uh, you know, she told me that the Indians had drank themselves to death and she gave me a kind of a horror story. It was so out of character and so uncomfortable that that's all I needed to know. Never go there again. Like, shush. That yeah, whole shush. shushing. Like, and that is not... It's rude. It's, it's rude. It's rude. So, sure. uh, you know, and that conversation happened in the context of it never being spoken about. And think about... So I was born in 1960. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the right in the civil rights movement. And colorblind becomes a political position. You know, we're going to have colorblind policies. Right. Which presumes there's such a thing as race neutral, which now, as we understand bias, <laughs> there is no such thing as race Doesn't neutral. Doesn't exist. Right. But right. boy, did that philosophy, that ideology leak out into the ideological ether that we were all in. Because every, every, most people I know, unless they had very intentional parents who understood racism and were unpacking it, and that skews much more to families of color who need to understand it to survive. But I meet very few white families um, who are out of the 60s. And that can mean you who were raised by parents who that's right. were out of the 60s. That's right. That's right. What Since it wasn't spoken about in your house, what was your whiteness awakening? Like, here's mine. You're looking at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I have to say, you know, like I did work in Shondaland for a decade. And it is the greatest place in the world where my boss is a powerful black woman. The lead of my show is a powerful black woman. It, it is a place of work where... It feels like, oh, this is just how things are. And it's not until now stepping out where I'm like, holy crap, this is a nightmare. You know, like Mm -hmm. I literally got to work 80 hours a week for 10 years in Utopia. Yeah. (laughs) And producing content. That's that right. was actually, you know, I, right. I was so grateful for like, you know, Grey's Anatomy and other shows that started to portray for my children who are now 22 and 25, um, a, a world that was not all white, you know, and where the people of color were not like the custodians right. or the total. Or in, or in jail or something yeah, like that. Yeah, fully you know. embodied characters. That's right. Um, with, with, you know, complicated lives like any human being. That's so right. That's where I've worked for a decade. It always felt like... Well, things are so great here and mm-hmm. we're making such moves and strides, mm-hmm. you know, and now it just I mean, look, this horrible stuff has obviously been going on forever, yeah. um, but it wasn't my nor- it wasn't my everyday even around a lot of black people in right. Hollywood. Um, so so I think I have a <laughs> pathetic little um, lookalike to you, like a little parallel story. Tell me. So I got I grew up in White Bubble Winchester, which is this affluent, you know, mm-hmm. uh, neighborhood. Yep. And then I went to White Bubble Canyon College in Ohio. And then I come back and I immediately um, get a job trying to raise money for underprivileged, under-resourced kids and inner city neighborhoods. And so for the first time in my life, I find myself like going to some neighborhoods and they don't look anything like mine. And and it's so clear to me that there's a correlation between shiny 
big houses and green lawns and white people. And I am speaking now in a black white paradigm as opposed to complicating a little bit more, which I can do later. And, and, uh, going to neighborhoods with dilapidated houses and schools with literally broken windows. Um, and those neighborhoods are populated by black folks. And yet we weren't supposed to talk about it because it was rude. Yet I was supposed to be raising money to create after school programs for these kids. And so I was on fire. I was like, this is terrible. You know, nobody should have to live in these conditions. And um, I went out to raise money, which I could do. I thought I was a great fundraiser. It turns out I had really good social connections. (laughs) Yay. Um, You know, more white privilege and also white arrogance, white entitlement. Like all of that was in me. And I'm sure is still in me in plenty of ways. And so that experience... Um, set me on a course of starting to join diversity committees, uh, trying to learn. And yet, as I sat on diversity committees, that elephant in the room feeling was never there. And no one ever turned to me, which I think they would do today and say, you have to examine your own whiteness, Debbie. Mm -hmm. Um, So I ended up being um, coddled, I think, by people of color who wanted access to the wealth I had access to. Sure, Um, sure. And that allowed me to stay in this really sickening white savior role mm-hmm. for 25 mm-hmm. years. Oh, wow. So I thought I was doing – it started in the in the performing arts on the man. I side. See what you're, I see where you're coming from. Wow. Okay. See, that's... then I became an elementary school teacher, and I carried my saviorism there. Mm. And, mm. and, you know, in retrospect, it's just stunning to me that I – I didn't dig more deeply into what is this elephant in the room feeling? Like, why am I not as appreciated as I think I should be? Would probably be a really (laughs) awful way to say that. Sure. Um, And it was at the age of 48. I'm 60 now. It was amazing. I know you guys can't see her because we're listening, but she looks um, amazing. There'll be a picture up on, we'll post. Okay. um, So it wasn't until the age of 48 that I went back to get my master's in special education and there was a required first course called Racial and Cultural Identities. I thought I was going there to learn about other people's children so I could get better at teaching them and big air quotes around them. And instead, it was a six-month deep dive into my own racial and cultural identity, which, oh, by the way, I didn't even know I had. Yeah, because you'd been doing great, helpful work in black communities for a very long time. You were like, I'm good. Well, so I thought, yeah. Yeah. And the more I learned, so I also was a history major. The history I learned in that six-month graduate school course, it just unraveled me. It, I started, I carried a bottle of ginger ale with me. It made me so sick to my stomach because my whole world, it was like, this is not the country I was told. Now that sort of means my family's not the family I was told and I'm not the person I was told. And I've been out there making an ass of myself (laughs) and probably creating more harm than good for 25 years. Wow. And how come it took a mandatory graduate level course for this to happen? And this is why I it, we're so happy to have you on Katie's crib, because even though, let's say, you know, this is a mom podcast and, and a lot of our moms are listening, but you can't deny that the work starts with our personal self until we are able to have that sort of realization that you've had and where you fit into all of this and what you are guilty of and we all are and your own racism, my own racism and my own white privilege I and really start to have honest conversations with yourself, with your family, with your 
people who you're caretaking your child with, then mm-hmm. I, I, you can't. Uh, I just I don't think we can do a good job as parents until we examine that stuff. Right. I agree. And, you know, I think there's an interesting. So I think you um, one of the things that you've discussed on this podcast with your listeners, postpartum depression. Is that right? A ton. A ton. Yeah. OK. So I had horrible postpartum depression. And nobody, so my first child was born in um, 1994, and nobody was talking about it. I mean, people weren't even on talking about it. Good luck. Yeah. Good luck, Debbie. Good luck. So I totally suffered in silence, which of course made it worse. And when I finally started to, you know, eke out to people like, I've really been struggling with, you know, postpartum depression. Um, people would say, oh my God, I did too. Or my sisters had a terrible time with that. Or, you know, I just learned my mother, you know, 30 years ago. So it's that kind of thing that once we start speaking openly about something, we can start to understand how prevalent it is. We can start to think together about, um, how to work towards solutions, how to alleviate suffering and not feel so alone and, and not feel like I felt like I was seriously a flawed human being for having postpartum depression. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. Well, it's so inherently like I had it too, but it's like to, to, to not, you feel like you're not a woman. Like how, how could I, my, my, my body did this or, or did, whatever. Like I am a mother. Like that's what I'm supposed to be doing right. in the most primal way I'm supposed to, and I'm supposed to like it. Yeah. And I don't like this. And okay. I can't control my feelings at all. Like I'm miserable. <laughs> right. Right. So here are the number of times you said should. There's uh, a lot of that around uh, um, acknowledging great. our white privilege. I should, right. you know, I should. Oh, great. I'm, yes. Or, you know, or I'm a good person. Like I have to maintain my facade. And that is the worst approach because as long as we are super invested as, in being seen as good people, we can't just sort of say, oh, my God, I've created, I've participated in a, in a corrupt s- system. I have perpetuated it, perpetuated it. it. Oh, oh, now that explains the time I had that conversation three years ago with that person. And I couldn't, you know, it's, we can't let all that in until we can understand that it is possible to be a good and beautiful and well-meaning white person and also have um, soaked in racist ideas our whole lives and acted them out in ways we don't even know. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with dust-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our 
favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? And meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Um, can you quickly just explain to me white privilege? Because I think of everyone I've been listening to, you do such a great job to explain this does not mean money, people. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which was, I mean, when I first heard the term white privilege years ago, I did not think it applied to me. And I could not be, I was not from a rich household. You know, I was like, oh, no, no, that's not, they're not talking about me. Right. Well, I'm talking about me. Yeah. And my white privilege. Can you explain that? Yeah. So I think in the context of this conversation, a social justice conversation, mm-hmm. um, the word privilege does not mean money. It means lack of discrimination. So if you think of um, discrimination as the short end of the stick, well, you can't have a short end of a stick without a long end. Privilege is the long end. So I have cisgender privilege. Um, I have heterosexual privilege. You know, I didn't have to, I've been able, I was able to marry and be public about the person I fell in love with. That was really convenient. I didn't, you know, the laws fit, the customs, the norms, public perception, it fit. Um, I have Christian privilege. You know, we're in a Christian uh, country. I have able-bodied, temporarily able-bodied privilege. Um, I do have class privilege. And I have racial privilege. Racial privilege in this country is called white privilege. It is possible to have white privilege and be impoverished or working class. And I think it's really hard for those folks to understand what white privilege will look like. Um, It looks like because you're white, you're walking around a store holding something is a different situation than someone than a black person walking around a store who might get followed or being in an elevator alone mm-hmm. with a woman or something like that. Correct. That's yep. And we could make a, a much longer list. It would. Oh, looks my God. Like the list is like it. It looks like if you have children and those kids go to school, um, impoverished white children are, are given extra attention and and teachers bring them food and and oh. really you know want to say this family's down on their luck I'm really going to help this kid and oft for kids of color it's like well that family it's their own damn fault you know they got oh, themselves into this mess that is absolutely heartbreaking okay the kids uh, the white kids will see themselves all over the school curriculum they they have something to aspire to kids of color may never see themselves in the curriculum the white kids will see themselves and more are more likely to see themselves in administrators and teachers not so for kids of color um oh guys con- this yeah. is running so deep I don't even know I mean it's just this is 400 years of mm-hmm. of the system I mean this is just it's a lot. It's a lot to unpack. Now, what I think 
your work is so incredible because you have this amazing site and we will put a link to it um, that gives us tools um, of things that we can be doing when we're waking up ourselves and then tools that we can transform this anxiety and inaction to actual empowerment and action um, as ourselves as individuals. And then that translates into ourselves as parents, if you ask me. Um, So can you talk a little bit about your 21 day racial equity habit building challenge? Mm -hmm. It's so good. It's so good. (laughs) Well, so one of the most incredible mentors, you know, any white person who does this work well is surrounded by mentors of color. And one of uh, my first and um, still someone I talk to all the time, uh, Dr. Eddie Moore Jr., he's a black man who founded the White Privilege Conference 21 years ago, back when everyone was telling him, you can't name it that. Um, And, you know, he just persevered and persevered, has grown to this huge conference. You know, Robin D'Angelo, who wrote Right for Just, she's she's out of that. A lot of us have done um, our our some of our uh, real boot camp work at that conference. So anyway, uh, Dr. Moore called me one day and he said, you know, because he and I had been talking about, isn't it, doesn't it drive you crazy after our workshops, how everyone, you know, the white people always say, tell me what to do. And we're like, well, you just had this major, like, can't you just sit with this brand new information we gave you? And then we realized, wait, that's really harsh. People do need something to do. So, um, and I think he used to say to people, just go do something every day, 365 days a year. So he said, you know what has just, I just came up with the idea, Debbie of 21 days. I think that's, that's what they, whoever they are say, that's what it takes to, to break a habit or yeah, to make a new habit. Exactly. I know that hand in hand. Right. That's right. And, um, I loved the idea. So we just, he had that idea. And like three days later we had this thing and it is great. And it's been adopted. I mean, I think if you Google it, it's like, you know, 120 million hits because entire organizations take the plan and make it their own. So the all you have to do is do one thing a day for 21 days and we give you the things. Uh, we just did a 21-day version about protest and rebellion to help people. I saw people. that. Yeah. That was amazing. And it and, has like, it's like, it's like the first step will be all these links of what to read. And then it'll be all these links of things to listen to. And what's great for moms who go to your site is that each thing tells you how long it is. Mm-hmm. So you can know my kid naps this long. <laughs> I can yeah. fit this podcast or this article or this video in. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then and I found that to be super helpful. And I love this part of the 21 day. You're you become a learner more than a knower. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about this? I'm a huge fan of this because I think this really is key for parenting as well. And you can talk about this because you have two kids. Yeah. What do you mean by being a learner more than a knower? Well, what's it can sound easy enough. Oh yeah, I'm going to do a little less talking. I'm I'm going to actually consume. I'm going to learn when I'm sitting with people. I'm going to ask more questions. I'm going to listen more. The thing about becoming a learner more than a knower is that our dominant culture in the United States, which is a white culture, so dominant white culture teaches us from a really early age to show what you know. We get rewarded for what we know. We get grades. You go on and, and we're competitive around it. You know, we get jobs, we get promotions, we get bonuses, we get salaries. Um, we get lots and lots and lots of cookies for showing how much we know. And often we get shunned by asking a stupid question. 
because it reveals what we don't know, as if somehow we are all supposed to know everything. And, you know, one of the biggest fears I hear from white people is I'm so afraid of saying the wrong thing. You know, my God, what if I say the wrong thing? And um, how can we how can we learn if we aren't acknowledging to ourselves and even those around us? I really I, I am so ignorant on this topic. I have so much to learn. And then, you know, if going to a, a workshop, for instance, or having a relationship with a, with a friend or colleague of color or multiple colleagues of color, if you're white, um, often white people have a habit of just talking a lot, taking up a lot of space because no one's ever asked us not to. Meanwhile, people of color have been told not to speak literally during enslavement. Don't speak until you're spoken to. And speaking up, um, often gets people of color in trouble if if speaking up includes his, her, their truth. So we have the, this conversational imbalance, this taking up space imbalance. So by being a learner and not a knower, it means that you just get into a space of just, you know, deep humility. That sounds, that's, that's very good. And I feel it, it, it almost parallels to parenthood because it's like you become a mom and all of a sudden you're like supposed to be the expert at being a mom. Like you've never done it before. I don't right. give a crap how many books you read on motherhood. It's completely different than actually doing it. I was a nanny for 10 years. I suck at being a mom some days. Suck. Mm -hmm. And I've had a lot of hands-on experience, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, in terms of this topic and racism and white privilege. I mean, th this is honestly, I've been having a ton of conversations with my family and my friends in the past three weeks. And this is this, I, this is one of two public conversations I've ever had. Mm. And so I keep saying my clothing is like soaked yeah. with sweat <laughs> yeah. because I'm so nervous about saying the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, but I also, I'm just jumping in. I don't know what else to do. I can't yeah. keep doing what I've been doing. You're in the ginger sure. ale stage. That's what I was <laughs> yeah, drinking. Yeah. I was carrying around ginger ale all the time because I felt nauseous. Oh, I mean, when I list yeah. learn the things I didn't know, I am so oh, horrified, yeah. disgusted. So now on top of the 21-day racial equity habit building challenge, you also have put on there the 21-day racial equity challenge specifically around protests and rebellions. Do you think that there is – do you encourage parents to be bringing their kids to things like this? Like um, do you think it's an important um, – I mean I, I think it's a mix of things. I also think there's a pandemic going around and I think right. it's really um, what parents feel comfortable with in terms of safety and health and things like that. And it's a personal thing. But um, – yeah, it's yeah, really contextual. It's yeah. contextual because it's it does have to do we do have a pandemic, so who in the family has what kind of uh, yeah. you know, uh, pre-existing conditions, yeah. And what what town are we talking about? Um I mean, my brother is in Mill Valley, California, and he and his family have been, you know, going out and and being a part of the protests. Um if you live in a different part of the world and there's more potential for violence, um then you know, maybe you don't bring the kids. I think one of the most important things is, um, can your family hold the conversation? Can you prepare your kids for it? 
can you help your kids make meaning of what's going on at the event? And can you help them process it afterwards? And it doesn't mean you have to be an expert to be in that position. It means you need to have that humility. So I think it's perfectly fine for a parent to say, you know, um, my mom and dad never took me to anything like this. Uh, maybe that's because there weren't protests in that, their particular childhood or, you know, because they really wanted me to protect me from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really important if we're going to be, I want our family to be engaged citizens. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important that we show up and it's not fair. You know, the way the world is right now, it's not fair. And by showing up, I want to be a part of um, creating a, a more fair world. Do you remember the first time your kids, like, noticed a black person or what you said? And you might not because you're so deep in this work, it might not have even been a thing. I don't know. Oh, oh, no, I do. And I I actually, I write about it in the book because my daughter, Emily, um, was in the third grade. And so I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Yes. And very diverse uh, town, city. And all of the schools, it's a lottery system. So all of the schools are uh, reflect the demographics of the city. Okay. So she's in a very uh, diverse classroom. And I was doing the dishes one night. And she kind of sidled up to me and just kind of leaned against me, which was very out of the ordinary. And um, she was kind of dipping her hands in the suds and just sitting there and then standing there. And she said, Mom, how come all the white parents come to pick their cuds up at school and all the black kids get on the bus? Oh, there you have it. (laughs) And what did you say? I said, now, I wasn't, I hadn't started, I hadn't started that graduate school course yet. I was still in my superhero white savior mode, white White savior savior mode. mode. Uh And I said, um, you know, Emily, that is such a good question. And I don't have the answer. Um, and you know, it's, it's interesting that I answered in such an honest, humble way because that wasn't the energy I brought out into the world around this work. Uh, but I think the way I answered was the was a good way to answer. It's it's absolutely oh, fine to model for your kids. Here's where I dropped the ball. That you don't know. That you that don't, I know. don't know. Yeah. yeah. And, and to honor the question. Yeah, it's a great question. It's, what a good question because we never want to stop the question. I mean, having our curiosity slapped out of us is a good is 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 part of the way this goes away. When we're supposed to be knowing, 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 showing how much we know all the time, we turn off we we kind of dull down the parts of our humanity that keep us alive and curious. So um, what I don't like about my answer is that the, I left it right there. Mm. And shame on me for that. You know, what if I had said, that is such a good question. I don't know why I hadn't thought to ask that. You know, I think we can, let's, let's figure it out together. Mm-hmm. You know, let's go talk to some of your teachers or let's, was the internet there? Certainly today you could, or the other thing you could say is, you know, I I don't know the answer, and I'm sort of embarrassed I don't know the answer. I would love to meet you right back here tomorrow night when I'm doing the dishes, and I am going to do a little research between now and then sure. so that what you're you're doing a lot in that kind of exchange. You're honoring the question, um, which will you're encourage being more. You're being honest. You're modeling that adults don't know everything. Uh, you're modeling that I care enough to go in search of it. And... Um, 
And then think of the conversation you could have. And then you're buying yourself some dang time to yeah, figure out what right. the hell you're going <laughs> right, to say. Right, <laughs> right. That's such a good question. Let me think about it. Probably has lots of applications. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because I would have to buy myself time. I would be like, I will come back to you after mommy has done some real work and research to figure out the answer yeah. to that. You know, and in this time, in, in, in this age, you, we could probably even find a child-friendly site with that. And you could say, look at this. I found this great organization, yeah. which I would never have known about if you hadn't asked me that question. This is mm-hmm. really great. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were a um, – what I forgot what you said, what grades you taught. K-1-2. Oh. My people. Aww. Those are my people. So – if learning what the kids are learning in school is so crucial and you're such an educator, how do we stop this whitewashing of history? Like what how do we do? I mean, obviously, I don't know. I haven't started school yet. I don't know how to fight for different textbooks or mm-hmm. is that something we need to be doing? Or is it that the school is what the school curriculum is and we just need to do our jobs at home to teach them the real truth? Well, you certainly need to do the at home piece. Um, and it will vary school district by school district, but you know, there's some, there are some generalizations I can, um, feel pretty confident in in talking about, uh, there in every town that I've encountered in every private school I've encountered, there is a vocal minority of the wealthiest, most powerful parents who do not want to see this kind of change. I did not send my child here to learn about this. I want them to know Shakespeare and, you know, Chaucer. And, <sighs> um, and, and what that makes one me of, sad. And one of the big questions is, um, will this moment change that? I mean, I'm seeing the impact of this kind of global awakening reach people who I've never seen before. A lot of CEO letters are going out. So h- how... Will that translate into schools? Will schools start to say, oh, maybe the thing that I've been hearing about my school trying to do that I've been resisting is worth knowing more about? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So certainly, you, and, and it's not like we need to invent a curriculum that teaches. All of this stuff exists. I mean, you know, the school uh, really changing the way we educate our children uh, I think would just be so wonderful for all the kids. It's it's just it's changing from this rigid testing uh, to a very human centered. I mean, that's for people who understand how to create equitable, racially equitable schools. Uh, at the center of any racially equity, equitable move, whether it's in healthcare, transportation, food supply, education, finance, housing, etc., what we're talking about is a more humane world. It's the inhumanity of the white supremacist culture that we're living in is that that's the struggle is to, I mean, when you hear defund the police, it's let's take some of that budget and put it into community workers. So when, when people start to understand the issue, uh, you will also start to hear what the solutions are. And the solutions are always uh, about moving towards a more humane way of being. So, and now here's a complication. Um, between here and the paradise utopia that we may or may not ever get to (laughs) is that uh, 85% of our public school teachers, or I think all school teachers in the United States, K to 12 are white. And most of those white teachers have not done the kind of internal work um, that's required. And so, um, you know, imagine a white teacher 
being told, uh, you know, you're not, you're not teaching my, my, my son. You're not teaching my black son. You're not teaching my black daughter. Uh, that teacher is very likely going to get so defensive and that white teacher has the power. So, um, often what I hear are parents of color who go in to speak to teachers and administrators and they get labeled the angry, unreasonable parent, and then they lose all advocacy over their children. And so it's essential and you can't teach what you don't know. There's a book by that title and you can't lead where you won't go. That's somebody else's phrase. Uh, so we really need our teachers to be deeply on board with doing an internal overhaul as well as a systemic overhaul. That's what I feel like the moms, the white moms need to do as well. <laughs> yes, because we could I, say, I mean, you could get all the great books in the world and the kind of conversations that are going to come up aren't conversations that you're necessarily ready for. Debbie, you are a wealth of help to all of us. And it's what's, I, I really... I think moms don't have a lot of time. I think a, a lot of the moms I've been talking to are like frantically trying to do this work mm -hmm. and at the same time are having a lot. It's been very hard because a lot of their lives have changed because of coronavirus um, and they're exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> and that is white privilege. OK, we know this, that like black moms and black families have been doing this work because they have to since their babies came out of the womb. Mm -hmm. We have gotten to push it off and be too tired. And we're not going to read the book because our kid had a tough day in a tantrum, whatever the hell it is. Um, but what's so great about your site is that it's all very centrally located and easily accessible for our moms listening and like and it is the long haul it's not like we have to be the perfect experts on this in the next two weeks i mean this is this is this is a this is this is a life change you know um um before we close out what is your hope during this time you know my hope um of course none of all this white waking up matters if it doesn't translate into improved material and psychological conditions for black people, indigenous people, Latinx people, Asian people. And so that's the real measure. White people will never be able to say whether or not we're doing better or worse. Only our brothers and sisters of color can let us know that. And it is going to be a long haul. And so with all of that in mind, my hope, my greatest hope for this moment is that we are on a journey together. We are on it. We are going to learn in the same way we learned about COVID. You know, we just all frantically learned how to be safe around it. We're all going to learn about how racism works. And it's not going to go away as soon as the sports and the movies and everything comes back. Um, mm -hmm. It's yeah. not. And that, and, and that also that people like you and your generation raised the first generation of non-colorblind kids. I hope we all look to that challenge and, you know, just face it head on and are brave and make real strides um, because we definitely can't keep going the way we've been. We can't keep going the way we've been parenting around race. No way. 
and I can I can give some bright bright news in there, and that is that um, the very same skills you will use to get uh, better and better at having complicated. Um, sometimes confusing conversations around race are the same skills that you will use uh, to have complicated, hard conversations uh, in your marriage and or with your partner and with your children as they get older. You know, really strong conflict navigation and difficult conversation skills are are skills that transfer across all kinds of uh, topics. Um, topics, exactly. And you also, uh, um, I think that we white people, particularly around the topic of race, uh, you know, Robin D'Angelo wrote the book White Fragility, which is yep. also a really great read yep. and um, brilliant book. And she's really helped me see the way that as a woman in this society, I was uh, supposed to be sort of demure and not necessarily speak my mind and not rock the boat. And that one of the results of that is that um, I don't necessarily know how to speak up effectively. I have kind of two modes. You know, I go quiet and sullen or, or teary or I, you know, lose my shit. Excuse my friend. No, that's right. And there's, and there's this whole world in between, which is really, really um, calm, drama-free, intelligent, honest, authentic conversation where we think together as human beings. And so there are a lot of skills and, and emotional capacities that we develop, I would say, at reclaiming parts of our humanity that we develop in this work uh, that translates to every single quarter of our lives. It's... <sighs> Do- Debbie Irving, you are a gem. It was a pleasure to spend some time with you. I can't recommend to our listeners enough to visit your website and read your book. Okay, I could just keep going on and on and on. I know, me too. This is wonderful. I'm, I'm feeling hope. I'm feeling hopeful, and I'm feeling, um, I'm just feeling like a lot of excitement around being a mom at this time. And I hope we get to look back at the this first generation of kids having the language skills. And the action skills around race to make our world a better place. You know, I'll leave you with one last Mm. thing. Um, uh, There are many cultures, including indigenous culture, where one of the ways you lead your life is you think about what kind of ancestor do I want to be? Whoa. Whoa. What I think I hear you saying is you're feeling the responsibility of that and the potential and the excitement of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, what a- Answer that for yourself, listeners. What kind of ancestor do you want to be? Thank you so much. Next up, we've got Dr. Margaret Hagerman. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with just-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. 
For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad, is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor, and meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. You guys, I'm so happy and thrilled to bring to you today Dr. Margaret Hagerman. I'm going to call her Maggie, but she's very fancy. So she goes by Dr. Margaret Hagerman. But because I like know her, I'll call her Maggie. She is a sociologist. She's the author of the book, White Kids, Growing Up with Privilege in a Racially Divided America. Her research explores how children and youth learn about racism, racial inequality, and racial privilege in their everyday lives. Ugh. Dr. Margaret Hagerman, Maggie, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm sure you are very busy these days. Um, and I'm so grateful you've ag uh, agreed to join us and share your valuable insight. And I wanted to start with um, how, how you were brought up. Like, you study how children learn race. So would you mind uh, sharing a little bit how you, how race was viewed in your home growing up? Sure. So I grew up in a suburban area in Massachusetts outside of Boston, um, and it was a predominantly white community, um, pretty affluent, I would say. And um, I remember having a lot of questions about race, honestly, when I was when I was growing up, but I didn't have any of the language to talk about it. So like I ran track, for instance, I remember like leaving my community to go to a different school to run it, run a track meet and noticing that like not only were the people at that school different than me in terms of like their race, but also like the conditions of the schools, you know, they, they maybe weren't as nice or they were falling apart or, you know. Um, and so I, I remember like noticing all these patterns, but then not really feeling comfortable enough to ask anyone about them. Um, and it really wasn't until I got to college that I took a class and I was like, wow, I, you know, never thought about all this stuff before. And that's really And you identify, to be clear, you identify white. Yes, right? I identify mm -hmm. as white. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I should say, like, my parents were very open in talking about current events and controversial topics. And I do, you know, I do feel like they gave me some tools, like some analytical tools early on. Mm -hmm. But it really truly wasn't until I was in a space where I was challenged. Um, and some of the assumptions that I had about the world were kind of turned upside down. And I had to had to think differently and, and learn differently. Um, I also grew up in a white, um, affluent community 
even though it was diverse in that there were all different colors in my public school, everyone a lot of times stuck to themselves. It was only if sports teams would mix and things like that. Um, And I just sort of accepted it for how that is. And I, you know, I just, I I already can see that sort of very easy trap to fall in because you're raising your kid in a certain neighborhood, it goes to a certain school, and all of a sudden we're part of the same systemic racism that has been perpetuated for hundreds of years. So this way that I was raised, colorblind. Now, again, like I think my parents are so love-filled. Like I love that I you know, bl- brought home black husband, uh, black husband. Well, I have a not black husband, but black boyfriends. And my parents never said anything. I mean, the one thing they were upset about was one of the dudes I was dating was 20 years older than me. That was upsetting. <laughs> but, but they never brought up race. And I still have not had the conversation with them. Did you not bring it up because you didn't have the tools? Did you not bring it up because you thought it was wrong? And you thought, in those time, you know, the 1990s, 2000s, there was this whole thing about, well, I don't see race because we're all equal and that's the way to be. Tell me why that's so wrong. I agree with you, but tell our listeners why that is not the way I will be raising my son. <laughs> well, I think the reality is that, and you know, I'm a sociologist, so I'm really into data and, and sort of what we know from, from scientific studies. And certainly, like you mentioned your kid, like, I mean, whether or not you talk to your child, I mean, there's research that shows that even little kids like three-year-olds are already noticing these patterns. They're noticing differences between themselves and others. They're really into sorting. And so all of these kinds of developmental processes are underway. And because we live in a society where race shapes so much of what's around us, like you said, where we live, um, the kinds of friends that we might have, kids are paying attention to this and noticing this at really early ages. So just because you don't talk about it, I mean, that doesn't change anything. And um, what I found in interviewing like middle school age kids, so they were like between 10 to 13, is that for those that were growing up in families that really embraced this colorblind approach, this kind of what you're talking about, they were so insecure about talking about race. They had a lot of anxieties about being called racist. Um, and they, they really just weren't prepared to live in a diverse democracy, quite frankly. Um, and so I, I think that by not having those conversations, you're actually like, I mean, your kids are still going to develop ideas, you know, um, they still have questions and I don't think that it, I don't think it really helps anything to just sort of ignore it. Um, and also I should add, you know, just, I think a lot about like how kids learn about sex um, you know, they talk to their friends. And so the question is sort of like, do you want to be the one to talk to your children about racism and that legacy? Or do you want to leave it up to peers? Ooh, and the information, and right. The social, information yeah, right, right. that they're getting. Um, but let's first, let's talk about um, this study. That, let's talk about the book that you devoted two years in an urban and suburban Midwestern community um, to explore the process of racial learning and how it unfolds in upper middle class white families. Um, and you used this, I've never said this word. Good luck, Katie. Ethnography? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is that? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you could give white people a survey and say, hey, what are your racial attitudes? But what we know is that they probably won't be honest. 
Nope. Um, and so that research methodology is not really the best for trying to understand how it is that people are making meaning and sort of understanding the world around them. Um, and so when it comes to trying to make sense of like how kids learn about race, you know, that's all a process of meaning making. And so in order to really examine that, um, ethnographers sort of put themselves into a community and spend a long period of time there and sort of really try to understand how the people in that community are making sense of their world. Um, and so for my study that involved, uh, I had 30 families that agreed to participate. And these were all families that had children between the ages of 10 and 13. Um, these were families that identified as affluent and white. Um, and I can talk, you know, if you have, I can talk more about what that means, you know, how they, how I measured affluence, but basically these were families that could make all different kinds of choices for their kids' lives. Um, and so I spent time with them. Like I babysat a bunch of the kids. I drove lots of people Bless to soccer you. practice. Soccer wow. practice was like really a thing I did a lot of. Um, <laughs> but yeah. And, and then I also did like, you know, um, birthday parties and just normal, like everyday kinds of things with kids doing their homework, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and I interviewed the parents, I interviewed the kids. And so over the course of two years, I was really able to, I think, grasp a, a pretty good understanding of what was going on and, and how this process of racial learning actually works. Um, so that's the power of an ethnography. I can't even imagine. <laughs> I'm imagining you taking a carload of kids to soccer practice and being like, so let's talk about race. <laughs> what do you guys think about race? Like, is it like that or is it much more nuanced and like more observe, like observing what's going on at the country club or whatever it is? Like, Yeah, so definitely I think the latter. I mean, in fact, when the kids were in the car together, that's like such a great time to observe them because yeah, like they're in the back seat, like having their whole little conversation. And um, there were things also when you're in a car, you're moving through different parts of a city, for example. And so mm -hmm. listening to what kids are saying as they're looking out the window and what they're seeing. Um, and I actually found that that a lot of, you know, a lot of the stuff that came up was really organic. It just sort of came into conversation. Like, and I think, I, you know, a lot of parents say this to me that like, like they feel stunned when their kid asks a question. They're like, where did that come from? Like, I, you know, I don't know how to answer it. And I felt that way too. Like these moments just sort of like emerged out of nowhere, which is why I needed to spend all of this time just with these kids. Um, because, you know, there were a lot of other moments where race wasn't the topic. Sure, um, sure, were like sure. fighting or whatever. Yeah, you know? yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Yeah, they wanted yeah. candy or they, they right. whatever. Um, based on your research, um, what what did you think is the most crucial for non-black parents to be cognizant of and and what are they what should we be willing to change like what did were any of these had you seen that any of the parents that you studied had race conversations with their kids or was it a similar situation to what i had growing up so that's a really i think important question because what i found was that there were different groups of parents in the study um, there were different, like different parents made different choices about how to set up their child's social world. And subsequently, their children then had different ideas about race. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the findings that I that I came to is that not all of the white children in this book think the same way about race, even though they're very similar, you know, they all in what in they've the been area. provided. Yeah, oh, exactly. Interesting. Um, so, and wow, so, how we raise our kids and what we talk about really makes a fucking difference is what I'm hearing. Yes. <laughs> Can help. This Absolutely. is this inspire this inspires me. This is good. I like this. Okay, so how did they talk about it? What did they do? 
Um, okay. So for the families that were approaching more of like a race conscious, you know, perspective, they, I mean, they were, and some of the families truly were, I mean, these were, these were people who identified openly as anti-racist. They were involved in anti-racist organizations in their community. This research was conducted in 2011. So, um, you know, um, Trayvon Martin had been murdered and I think that sort of, you know, initiated some of this, but, um, certainly I think that, um, you know, these families were very committed to their children attending the local public school that was racially integrated. They then, when they were at the school, some of them at least would fight some of the internal um, segregation within the school. So like, I'm really thinking about this concept of tracking where, you know, the AP classes have, you know, primarily white kids and then the basic classes have primarily black kids, you know, so um, these were parents that were really committed across the board. Um, I, you know, nonetheless, I do identify ways that they unintentionally reproduce some of the very things they're trying to challenge. For example, they would get their kids like extra tutoring or, you know, they try to get them, they would use their social networks to get their kid into some like really prestigious coveted internship over the summer, even though they knew that, you know, oh my God, this is so how be. I grew up. This is so how I grew up. <laughs> but what's interesting about those parents though, is that like, they get it. They, they, they understand that, that like race matters, that racism is a problem, you know? And, but even still, when it came to their own kid, they felt like I've got to give them a leg up. So yeah, what yeah. I thought was so brilliant about your study and about interviews that I have watched of you, um, <laughs> is that, there's this inherent problem where even people such as myself, like totally privileged, was raised in a privileged way, um, that even though I would like to think I want to make choices that are the best for my community, when it comes down to it, parents really just want to do what's best for their own kid. And so even if you claim to be anti-racist, doing the work, blah, blah, blah. But you're still like, yeah, but I'm still going to fight to get my kid with the best tutor or into the best school or into the best soccer team or whatever the hell it is, because somewhere along the line, we've been conditioned to be very selfish and in, in, in that uh, like or, or not. I don't know how you perceive it, but that my job is to give all that I can in the best ways to my child and not to my community as a whole. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's it's our... like a problem. Like I have really <laughs> learned that. I'm serious. I have. Le- I mean, look, I think um, hopefully a lot of people out there listening right now, especially white people, are doing a lot of self-reflection and looking at how they were raised and how they talk about race with their families. And this work has come way too late in my life, for sure. I will be the first to admit that. Um, But I'm really seeing, I mean, I already see it happening with my friends. Like, we want to give what's best for our kids. Like, you just want to do what's best for your kids. I would give him the shirt off my back. I would give him all my money. I would, I want to give him the best opportunities. Um, And... That doesn't e- that's in complete conflict with giving him a integrated um, childhood, really. Right. Am I wrong? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is like the real core of, I think, my argument um, is that we yeah, we have this collectively agreed upon idea that being a good parent 
means giving your kid the most that you possibly can, no matter Which what. Which means the most expensive for right. in, in exactly. a lot of cases. Yeah, if, you, if you are affluent and white privileged, whatever. Yeah. Um, it often means there's a concept in sociology called opportunity hoarding. So it means hoarding opportunities for your, for your own child. And, you know, I think when parents do these things, they're not, they're not mean spirited. They're not trying to hurt other people. That's the whole point. It's that it's this, it's this process where the consequences are that you reproduce these patterns of inequality. You pass on, you know, your privilege to your children and, um, you know, that, that I think continues some of the major problems that we have in our society. Um, something that I often, so I talk to a lot of parents, I've been, you know, going around the country since my book came out and talking to different groups and, and parents often ask me like, well, what am I supposed to do? Like, I do want to give my kids, you know, like, are you saying I shouldn't give my kids piano lessons? Like, you know, and it's like, no, that's not what I'm saying. But, um, you know, there's some evidence that if we look at like, like rates of suicide and depression and anxiety and this whole like frenzy that a lot of, of affluent white families engage with about getting their kids all, you know, getting into Harvard, this whole, like, I, I literally think it's a frenzy. Um, you know, I think some of that actually is really bad for kids. And I think there's evidence to suggest that, that, that going to Harvard is not necessarily going to mean that you're happy. And every single parent that I've ever met has told me that they want their kids to be happy. So I think we could challenge some of these ideas about what it means to be a good parent and what kinds of gifts do we actually want to give the future generation? Do we want to give them more inequality, more racism, more problems, or do we want to empower them to, you know, be, be part of something better? I, I want to do that. <laughs> I would like to do that. So let's talk about in your book, you you call something which is like an action item, right, of what we could do. Like, so there's this idea of bundled choices, right? If I pick this white neighborhood to live in that has this white fancy private school that has this soccer team, like whatever, like all of a sudden you're in this um, this predestined situation from this one choice. What are other choices I could be making? Sure. So I think um, the choices about where to live are certainly complicated but I think we could, you know, I think people could collectively sort of shift how they make decisions about where to live um, or shift decisions about what school they send their kids to. Um, you know, there's a really great organization called Integrated Schools that tries to help parents um, who want to who want to send their kids to integrated schools. Um, a lot of parents talk to me and say, especially white parents, and they say, like, well, I don't want my I don't want my kid to be the only white kid at the school, that kind of thing. Um, and I think we need to get past all of that. And we need to think about, um, you know, how, how school integration is actually one of the best ways to combat racism. Um, and there's all kinds of evidence that, that suggests that's true. Um, so I do think that that's one, that that's one action item um, in making these decisions. I also think that parents can be really deliberate in the kinds of spaces that they spend their time. Um, you know, I think that, the friendship groups that that parents have, um, the kinds of media that gets consumed, uh, the kinds of there's a lot of discussion right now about the books that parents are reading and kids are reading. I think that's really important. Um, you know, giving kids this critical language to ask the questions that like I didn't have the language to ask when I was growing up. Um, and I think you know even things like like choosing the kinds of extracurricular activities. Um, you know what kinds of what kinds of um, ideas about competition are you reproducing? You know, there, there, that kind of gets really broad, but I just think that in general. Yeah, not- I've already been thinking about like, okay, I mean, 
I think like in my neighborhood, for example, there's like a pretty good public school. I would say most of the rich kids in my neighborhood opt to go to the private school that's also down the street and like all woo woo and progressive and all this shit. Now, um, in learning everything I'm learning, that's not a choice. I, I, I feel very excited about not making that choice. But also I feel like there's other things you can do like like, where can he go to soccer practice? Like, if L.A. is so segregated geographically, like, can I do a little bit more of the legwork and figure out extracurricular things he could do that might not be in this exact neighborhood that would help introduce him to other people, other kinds of people, like black people? Like, you know, like, is that yeah. a choice I should be making? Like, well, you know, it's the for the kids in my study. Yes. You know, only one of them of the of the. 36 kids, um, in total that I, that I studied, only one of them had a meaningful relationship with a black child, only one in the whole whole study. Now, the thing that was so fascinating about this was that, you know, there's a lot of research about like, you know, if you put people of different groups together, you know, do they suddenly get along and like racism is over? Obviously no, no. (laughs) but I think there's evidence that shows that when kids like have a shared goal with, you know, across Mm -hmm. different types, whatever groups they might be gender race. Mm -hmm. Um, if they, um, if they genuinely like care about each other, you know, that these kinds of things can at least help. I'm not saying these are like going to like solve racism, but I do think that, uh, like in the, in my book, for example, that one child that had that friend, um, there was this rule at the school about hoodies and you, you weren't supposed to have your hoodie up over your head, you know, in class or whatever, but it was only the black kids that that would get in trouble for having their hoodies up. And so this was a whole thing that kids were talking about. Um, you know, they, they really saw this as an example of a racial injustice at their school, but the only child who, who really like took a stand and who, who had any like emotional response to this was this one child whose best friend was like getting racially profiled at school, you know? And so I, I do, I did see sort of like that child was talking about race in a slightly different way. And he was, he was motivated beyond just like, I don't want to be racist. He was motivated. Like my friend is being hurt and I want to do something to try to like fix this if I can. Um, so again, it's just one kid, you know, I don't have a representative sample, um, across the whole country, but no, I but there's a that, personal connection yeah. because he's having personal, real experience. Right. And, um, just another quick example. I, you know, I went back and re-interviewed a third of these kids when they were in high school. So like four, four or five years later. And, um, there had been a black teenager who was killed by the police in one of the neighborhoods that I studied. And so I talked to the kids who are now, in te- who are now teenagers about this. And, um, it was the kids who were going to the integrated school who had, you know, that one kid that, that, that was, that I just mentioned, um, the kids who had a more critical lens on race in middle childhood, like when they were in middle school, um, they were the kids that were the most, um, sort of, you know, committed to standing behind their black peers as they did a school walkout. They, you know, they wanted to be there in a supportive role. Um, they weren't trying to lead it, you know, they weren't trying to like, take over like a lot of times what people do. Um, they, they just clearly had developed a set of skills that I was frankly kind of surprised by. Um, and, but I think that that's, that's not just what parents, what their parents told them. Right. In fact, some of those kids were arguing with their parents about the incident that had happened and the, the murder that had happened and, um, had different opinions from their parents. And so, you know, I guess I just think that that provides a really clear example of how 
it's the larger environment. You know, kids are developing their own ideas. They're not simply reproducing their, the ideas of their parents. So if they're not given the opportunity to have these like more, you know, broader, more inclusive friendship groups and soccer teams and whatever, then, you know, that's definitely right. not going to happen. Right. So like some of that at least can be somewhat right. helpful. And for those who, let's say, they don't have the privilege to make choices about which schools they enroll in or, you know, and those sort of things, how how can they positively, like, impact their social environment? You yeah, it's a, good, it's a good question. Yeah, so my research is really on these, like, privileged people who, you know, who can kind of opt out of whatever they want. Um, but I, I think that, um, and in fact, there's a lot of evidence that shows that, like, working class white people, despite um, some stereotypes, are in some studies are shown to be more racially progressive than, than these sort of, like, affluent, educated white people. So you know, there's kind of a debate in the field about that. But um, I, I do think that there are still so many different um, kinds of decisions that parents make, like, you know, the, like, again, like the kinds of media that, that is, that are, that's consumed. I mean, I was really surprised at how often I grew up in a house. My parents were kind of weird actually, and we didn't have a TV. Um, and so I don't really like, I, you know, I watched scandal, but I didn't really watch like, I, I love you. TV. <laughs> I don't like watch a ton. Of, I don't have the TV on all the time or anything yeah, like either, that. And yeah. I'm not saying that like a judgmental way. It's just like the reality of, of, of no, you life, weren't but, raised with TV. I was automatically yeah. like, were your parents hippies? <laughs> well, it's possible. Yeah. Um, they're in Massachusetts. My parents are in Vermont. Like I, I love <laughs> Massachusetts. Okay. So, so no TV, but you but watch like, but scandal. I'm just saying, like, when I did, when I did this study, like, I was really surprised being in other people's homes for such extended periods of time, like just how often they had like the radio on or the TV on just kind of in the background. Um, and I think that, you know, even, even things like social media, um, that are, that are, the kids are more controlling that that's also something that parents can, can talk with their children about and try to teach them how to discern between things that are, you know, factual versus not. And, um, like I'm sure you've seen some of the recent stuff about like white, white teenagers, um, being recruited from these like white nationalist organizations via social media. Right? So like, I think that like the, the list of things that parents can do and worry about is really long. Um, <laughs> sorry, but no, it's uh, <laughs> so bad. I'm like, okay, I'm just hoping my son's two and a half. I'm just hoping like we've like completely like social media doesn't exist by the time he's like 14, I know that's not going to be possible, but that's what I like pray for because it scares me so much. I mean, yeah, in terms of I mean, it scares me in terms of everything, but it, in terms of just racism or or like you said, like news sensationalized stories, what's true, what's not. I mean, I have a hard time discerning that. And I'm 37, let alone a 14 year old you know, who's looking at stuff on Instagram or TikTok or whatever the hell yeah. it is, mm -hmm. um, let alone what's coming in on the TV, what's coming in in all their songs. Like I listen to the cool stuff on the radio and I don't even know what the hell is happening. I mean, I feel so <laughs> old. <laughs> it's unreal. Um, but that has all have that has to all contribute to the what's coming into your kid's brain. So in this um, very complicated, difficult time of unrest, what is helping you to find hope these days? Or like, what hope can we offer the mamas out there who are like uncertain about our kid's future in a world that looks like this? I think that the real hope is that this will be a moment where 
white people and white parents, but also people who are not parents, um, that white people in general will move from talking about racism to changing their actual behaviors. Um, I think that the number one thing that white parents in particular need to think about is how actions speak louder than words. So what they're, how they're setting up their kids' lives is ultimately in many ways, like just as maybe even more important than what they say about race. Like my hope is that this is a moment where folks who are, you know, newly, you know, like, you know, waking up, you know, or, or becoming more aware, I guess, of racial inequality, racial oppression and racial violence, that they will then, you know, take this forward into actions and think about how even at the very micro level of the way that they're parenting and living their lives, like that's part of the problem, you know, the, the larger structural problem too. Can you tell us about your latest study? I'm kind of horrified by it. <laughs> Actually, I'm not going <laughs> to lie. I'm like horrified. Is it going to be a book? I'm like so scared when it comes out what the research you find is. Yeah. So I'm working on this this book. Um, so basically, I in this new project, I'm really interested in how geography, like where you live, what part of the country and also politics at the political landscape, how these are also aspects of a child's social world. So in my first project, it was really sort of like neighborhoods and schools and peers. And in the second project, I'm trying to build out a little bit and think about how, you know, what does it mean to grow up in Mississippi, which is where I live, um, you know, right now versus growing up in a place like Massachusetts, where I used to live as, as a child, you know, and, and how do these geographic regions matter if they matter? Do they matter? That's kind of my question um, for how for how kids across racial and class lines are thinking about race. Um, and in addition, how does the, the um, Trump era uh, particularly following the Obama era, like how does this this shift in in political leadership, um, the explicit racism from the president, how oh does God. that you know shape how young people are thinking about race race and racism um, in America? And so I am horrified yeah. to know what you're learning. <laughs> I am very scared. I'm not going to lie; it's intense research. Um, like in my previous study, a lot of the white kids would say racism, I don't, you know, racism doesn't matter anymore. Like we're past racism. Racism is over. That used to be in the past, like Martin Luther King, you know, that kind of thing. Um, the kids now, the, the kids now are not saying that they're saying, yeah, racism exists, but I don't care. They're like, yeah, Trump is racist, but I don't care. Whereas in the past kids would be like that. No, politicians aren't racist. What are you talking about? Maybe there's a couple racists down in the South or something, you know, but um, so this this concept of racial apathy, that's what I'm really seeing an increase in, um, at least at, the, at a small scale in my study. And there's certainly some larger, more nationally representative survey data that show um, Tyrone Foreman and Amanda Lewis, who are my advisors. Um, but they, you know, they have some data that show that like in high school, like this, there's, you know, white, a lot of white youth are expressing racial apathy um, rather than some sort of like empathy or, or concern or care. And okay. if you're mama's, mama's listening out there, are you hearing this? I have goosebumps all over my body. Like moms out there hearing this, there are teenagers with racial apathy. That is not what we want happening. Okay. So in review, while we close up, let's just go through again because actions speak louder than words actions that we can take. Let's just review what we've already said. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So I think that, you know, parents who are in a position to be making choices about their children's, 
you know, environment, whether it be their extracurriculars, their schools, where they live, the kinds of friends that they choose to have in their life. Um, you know, those kinds of choices are really, are really important because they set up the world that kids then live in and are constantly interpreting ideas from, um, you know, parents decisions about like, how do you respond when a relative is racist at Thanksgiving, right? Those kinds of decisions also matter too, because you're modeling something to your kids when you, when you challenge someone in your family on, on something. That's a great point that we have not yet talked about. That is excellent. Cause modeling is big on Katie's crib, especially for little ones. Like kids are just copycats of their parents to their whole world, you know? So that's great. Um, and then I think the final thing gets at that concept of opportunity hoarding that I went, that I mentioned. And if I can just tell you a really quick little story Please. that I think is really compelling. So someone Maggie, that I, I know, could talk to you forever. So somebody that I know told me this person has a lot of status in their community and um, their child was having trouble with the teacher at school. I don't know all the details. And so the principal, you know, he kept having trouble, kept having trouble. And so the principal came to my friend and said, Hey, you know what? Why don't we just take, take your kid out of that classroom? Obviously there's a problem with that teacher. Let's just take that kid out. I don't want you to be mad. Like you're an important member of our community, blah, blah. And so my friend in that moment said that he thought about my book. I don't know. He might've just been like sucking up to me, but he said like, no, if I take my kid out, then there's a whole other room of kids that still have that teacher and still have that problem, whatever that problem was. And so if I like, I could leverage my privilege in this moment to get at the root of the problem so that all of the kids are, you know, benefiting, not just my kid. And so I think that like those kinds of decisions, like you can't deny the fact that certain parents have more power in the school. Like that is, I'm not saying it's how it should be, but I am saying that that's typically how it is. And so I think if you're, if you find yourself in that position, it's really important to think about how you can advocate for not just your kid, but for, you know, the common good and, and, and everybody's kid, but not in a way that steps on the, you know, like the sort of like uh, marginalizes parent, you know, parents of color. Um, there's a, a scholar and my friend, um, Lynn Posey Maddox that talks about PTAs and how like, you know, white moms like take over the PTA and push everybody else to the side, you know? So I think that like, there's, so I don't want to be clear that there's like a, you know, I think there, there's some nuance there, but I think the larger point of like, it's not just about your kid. Like if you want your kid to live in a more equal world, then you have to do things that benefit everybody, everybody. And that's the type of kid you want to raise. I mean, it's the type of kid I want to raise. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I hope I can do it. Um, <laughs> you can do it. I'm not you. Um, Maggie, Dr. Margaret Hagerman, I am so honored and thrilled to be talking <laughs> to you about this. And um, I learned so much from your book. So thank you so very much for coming on Katie's Crib. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Good. As always, thanks for hanging out with us at Katie's Crib. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And if you've got a question or topic you'd like us to address, please email katiescrib at shondaland.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Katie's Crib. Till next time. Katie's Crib is a production of iHeartRadio and Shondaland Audio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Renegade.